As we look at this chapter this morning, chapter 14, Dale, da Dale Ralph Davis, who writes a commentary in 1 Samuel, shares this story about a Minnesota semi-pro baseball team. And it's these two teams named uh, Benson versus Wilmar. And what happens in this story, and it's a true story, is that at the end of the ninth inning, they're tied. Zero, zero. No one has scored a run. And as you go into extra innings, Benson goes to at bat first in the top of the 10th. And they score a run, meaning that Wilmar then, at the bottom of the 10th inning, needs to score two runs to win the game, or at least score one to extend it into more innings. Well, their pitcher comes to bat, and his name is Thielman. And Thielman, as you know, most pitchers aren't great hitters. But he smacks a single, and he's at first base. And next comes O'Toole. O'Toole, who's a good hitter, smacks a long line drive deep into the outfield. And the crowd erupts. And as Thielman, the pitcher, rounds second base, O'Toole following behind, Thielman collapses at third base. Now O'Toole, knowing that he can't pass him, otherwise both of them would be out, he basically partially drags and carries Thielman 90 feet home to home plate. The umpire amazingly allows both runs to score and the place erupts. Thielman was the winning pitcher, but Thielman was also dead. He, was, he had died of a heart failure at third base. And as I read this story, I was just in shock. But the reason I share this story is because there can often be shadows over victories. And there actually can be sadness, even in success. And that's what we get here as we are about to read chapter 14 in 1 Samuel. That even in success, you can actually lose. Now, there's a lot here, as I said, in verse, uh, 52 verses. But if you recall last week, in chapter 13, we see King Saul just go on this downward trajectory of moral failure and faithlessness against God. And as this story continues, what we're going to see is that Saul continues down this wayward trajectory of, of losing. But if you remember last week, not only was he rejected by God because of his faithlessness, but if you remember last week, the people of God were absolutely screwed, right? I mean, they were surrounded by the Philistines from every single corner. Second, they were out, outgunned because the Philistines had basically monopolized all of the metal and iron. So the Israelites had no swords or spears. They just had like these weak weapons. But thirdly, they were completely outmanned. 36,000 Philistines versus a paltry 600 soldiers of Israel. It all looks horrible, and we were left pretty much at a cliffhanger. But what we're going to see here as we look at this is that despite of Saul's faithlessness, despite of his downward trajectory, we see his son rise. And this is not a case of like father, like son. Not at all. What we're going to see is a story where 
Jonathan is faithful while Saul is faithless. And so as we study this chapter, here's what I want us to be able to look at. What does true faith look like? What does real, authentic faith require in our lives? And as we go through this story, we're going to see what faith looks like through the person of Jonathan, through Saul's son. Now as I am about to read verse 6, I have to catch us up to what the first five verses are about. Saul, the king, in a, in a horrible situation, guess what he's doing? He's sitting. He's sitting under a pomegranate tree. And only the filthy rich had pomegranate trees. And he's sitting there doing nothing but being idle. And next to him is King Ahijah, who if you remember way back when, early in uh, 1 Samuel, he was also rejected by God as a priest because of his faithlessness and his wickedness. And so here are two dudes, two dudes sitting under a pomegranate tree who have been rejected by God, sitting idle, doing nothing. When they were the ones who were supposed to be doing something. When the people of God needed them most, they are sitting idle. And guess who's moving? Jonathan. And that's where we're going to pick up here in verse 6. Read along with me. Jonathan said to the young man who carried his armor, so he's talking to his armor bearer, come, let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. And he's talking about the Philistines who are surrounded them, outmanned, outgunned. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. And his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Do as you wish. Behold, I am with you, heart and soul. Then Jonathan said, Behold, we will cross over to the men, and we will show ourselves to them. If they say to us, Wait until we come to you, then we will stand still in our place, and we will not go up to them. But... But if they say, come up to us, then we will go up, for the Lord has given them into our hand, and this shall be the sign to us. Now, pause for a moment. The first thing we see here, as Jonathan talks to his armor bearer, is that faith does not presume upon God. That's the first thing we learn about Jonathan's faith. Faith does not presume upon God. And why I say that is Think about Jonathan here. It's, it's utterly hopeless, the people of God. They're surrounded, outmanned, outgunned. There's no hope here. But what does Jonathan say to his armor bearer? Look, look at verse 6. It may be, and some translations say perhaps, perhaps the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving by many or by few. Faith. For Jonathan sees who God is, not his circumstances. He understands God's power. He understands God's will. And here in this story, as Jonathan talks to the armor bearer, he's not saying as if, like, I'm going to hedge my bet and I'm actually faithless here. Well, maybe, perhaps God will save us. No, what he's doing here is he's not presuming upon God's power. He's not presuming upon God's will. Rather, he is absolutely submitting himself, humbling himself to know that I cannot presume upon what God will do here. It is not my will. It is not my right to say, God, you must do this for me. But rather, in humbleness, 
in a submission to who God is, understanding his power, understanding that God is at work. He says, perhaps, perhaps God will act. And it's beautiful. He says, maybe with many, which is kind of the usual way, or unusual, unusual ways with a few. This is the faith of Jonathan. He does not presume upon God, and neither should we. I know some of us are in hard, hard situations in life. It could be circumstantial. It could be something internal. And as you face these situations where you feel utterly helpless, like we looked at last week, many times what we do is we say, God, you must act. You must do this for me. You must heal my father. You must heal this relationship, this relationship that's broken. You must act because this is what you are. But Jonathan doesn't presume. He understands who God is in his faith. And he says, perhaps. It may be that the Lord would work for us. He's not saying you have to do this, but rather it is a submission, a humility in God's ways. He is not presumptuous about God's dealings with us. And that's the first thing we see here. Faith does not presume upon God, but rather with a humble reliance upon Him. We trust in whatever He does, He will do because He is good. Now, what happens with Jonathan's faith in God? Well, God actually gives him the victory. It plays out just as He had drawn up with His armor bearer. They call, the Philistines basically are just taunting them and saying, Come up, come out to us, and let's see what's going to happen. And so what happens? Jonathan and his armor bearer take on 20 of the Philistines and destroy them. They kill all 20. And what happens from that is that there's absolute chaos and panic. There's a great panic, as the storyteller describes. And the earth shakes. And out of that commotion, Saul, who's sitting, doing, being idle, who should have been acting as the king, he hears it and gets up. And he calls his army. And even those that are hiding... Remember last week they were, they were hiding the holes because of fear of the Philistines? They were hiding in caves and in cisterns and wells. They get out of the holes and caves and they march on and they go on to defeat the Philistines. Look at verse 23. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Why? Because of Jonathan's faith. Now what happens next? Verse, continue in verse 24. And the men of Israel had been hard-pressed that day. Why would they be hard-pressed? They just won. But here's why. Saul, Saul had laid an oath on the people saying, Cursed be the man who eats food until it is evening, and I am avenged on my enemies. So none of the people had tasted food. Why are the people hard-pressed? Because of their own king, Saul. He demands that no one can eat until they experience victory, complete victory against the Philistines. So guess what that means? Why are they burdened? They're exhausted. They're hangry. If you're going to fight, you need to be nourished and strengthened with food. But Saul, for whatever reason, makes them fast. And so not only are they exhausted and hangry, but the other thing that's actually more devastating is that they sin against God. Because in their hunger and being famished, when they take the spoils from the Philistines, they take the animals, they kill them, and instead of doing it the proper way that God had always commanded with these ceremonial laws about draining the blood from the animal because blood meant life, 
They eat the meat with the blood snot had been drained. And so they commit sin against God with the ceremonial laws that God had given them. And whose fault is that? Well, they have to own their own sin. But Saul did not help the situation. He created this immense and unnecessary burden for God's people. And he becomes the reason for their burden. Do you remember last week in chapter 13, in parentheses, why were the people of God hard-pressed? The Philistines. The enemies of God had brought this burden upon the people of God, and rightly so. But here, who's the one that's doing it? Not an enemy, but his own, their own king. How ironic that Saul is the one that burdens and hard-presses his own people. But here's the thing, Jonathan didn't know about this law that, or this fast and this burden that he had made his people do. And so he eats honey, not knowing of his own father's edict. So what does Saul do? He's in a predicament here. Read in verse 43, jump to verse 43, and listen to these words that Saul says to Jonathan. Tell me what you have done. And Jonathan told him, I tasted a little honey with the tip of the staff that was in my hand. Here I am. I will die. And Saul said, God, do so to me and more also. You shall surely die, Jonathan. Then the people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Far from it. As the Lord lives, there shall not one, there shall not one hair of his head fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people ransomed Jonathan so that he did not die. Then Jonathan went up from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. The second thing we see here is not only does faith not presume upon God, but second, what we see here is faith does not always have the answers. Faith does not always have the answers that we think we need to have. Here's what I want us to see. In this chapter, what we come to realize is that Jonathan actually has become their savior in many ways. Jonathan is the one that's actually become the king. And Saul is a reason for the people being hard-pressed. He's just like the enemy, the Philistines, ironically. But also, what we see here positively is that three times salvation and the word save is attributed to Jonathan, not Saul. And so when Saul's about to kill his own son, what do his soldiers say? Shall Jonathan die who has worked this great salvation in Israel? Jonathan is acting more like the king, the one who is their representative and not Saul. Now think about this. As the readers, as the soldiers, as the people of God, don't you have questions? Like why isn't Jonathan the one who is king? He's the one who's royal material. But he will never have that opportunity. Why? Because God had rejected Saul's line and his dynasty. And the questions that we have is, why could Jonathan not have been king instead of Saul? Why must Jonathan's opportunities be squelched? These are the questions that Jonathan and the readers and us should ask. What is God doing? Why does he work this way? Why is God wasting such an amazing opportunity with Jonathan? This seems all so unfair. And that's my point here. 
Faith does not always have the answers. Faith actually many times requires that we have doubts. The questions of life, the whys, the what ifs, and all of the mess that comes with following Jesus. Think about our cultural moment right now. We stake everything on our certainty, right? You must have the answers to mask mandates, to the vaccines, to the pandemic, to political parties, to the policies that are being made. We have to have certainty about all the right issues and, have, and be on the right side. And if you don't, what happens? You're canceled. And we are living in a moment where you cannot have any uncertainty. You can't have any questions. You have to know exactly why and what you believe because that's our cultural moment. And when it comes to faith, there are so many, maybe you yourself or you have friends or family that are actually going through this process of deconstructing one's faith. And it's so easy for us as Christians to, to judge and criticize those that are famous that maybe have left the faith. People like Joshua Harris. And we're so quick to judge. But when we look at faith, faith actually doesn't always require that you have all the answers. And this is Jonathan's life in this moment when he's called to live his life faithfully. He has so many questions about why he isn't king or why Saul had to be the one that was rejected because he's living his life faithfully. But what does it look like for us to be able to have an open hand as we walk this Christian life rather than a closed hand that thinks you have everything right in your life? It's a humbling experience, but one where God calls us to be able to humbly submit and say, I don't have all the answers. I'm not certain about life and everything that's going on. But do I have faith to be able to walk and trust the Lord and still remain faithful in your walk and journey? This is what faith is like. Faith does not always have the answers that you're looking for. The last thing we're going to see here is that faith does not equal success. And we see this here in this last portion, this last paragraph that we're about to read as we close chapter 14. Now as I read this, what I want you to think about is this. Think about how Saul is described in verses 47 through 52. And as you listen to it, it should jar you a little bit. Read along with me in verse 47 of chapter 14. When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all his enemies on every side, against Moab, against the Ammonites, against Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did valiantly and struck the Amalekites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. Now the sons of Saul were Jonathan, Ishvi and Malchishua, and the names of, names of his two daughters were these. The names of the firstborn was Merib, and the name of the younger was Mishal, and the name of the Saul's wife was Ahinoam, the daughter of Ahimaaz, and the name of the commander of his army was Abner, the son of Ner, Saul's uncle. Kish was the father of Saul, and Ner, the father of Abner, was the son of Abiel. 
There was hard fighting against the Philistines all the days of Saul. And when Saul saw any strong man or any valiant man, he attached him to himself. Now, up until now, what has Saul's trajectory been? It's been downward. It's been negative. He's headed towards disaster. But what do we read here? Isn't it surprising? Words like valiant. He he, dis- he destroyed all of his enemies on every side, Moab, Ammonites, Edom, against the kings of Zobah, and against the Philistines. And then we hear about his whole lineage, which is actually this beautiful praise of who your family is, and your genealogy, and the line that you come from. What in the world is going on? How do we assess Saul when up until this point, and we're going to see next week it get even worse, he's a horrible man. He's been rejected by God. But then we come to this paragraph and like we're praising him. I think we have to take both assessments as true. On one hand, Saul historically was a success. As a military leader, A huge win. In the eyes of man and history, he has succeeded like every king should. You look at his achievements, his contribution. He did everything that a king should be and do. And actually, he was everything the Israelites had always hoped for and why they demanded that God give them a king. Because he was like all the other kings in other nations. He succeeded at war. But So by that standard, he made his mark, and he made it so well. But on the other hand, this is where the problem lies. There's another way to look at Saul and assess him. It's not so much with human eyes. It's not so much with geopolitical eyes, but through the eyes of faith. And often, faith does not equal success. That's what we see here. Faith does not always equal success. They are not always synonymous. And this is what we have with Saul. Dale Davis, the same commentator, noted this. He said, quote, The vital assessment cannot come from the applause of men within history, but only from the God who reigns over history. What matters then is not success, but covenant. God's promise to his people and our obligations and duties to obey God. Yahweh is not looking for winners, but for disciples. Saul did not submit to the covenant God. And for the Bible, covenant obedience matters far more than vocational achievement, unquote. You see, both are true assessments. But with regards to faith, only one matters. That's why faith does not always equal success. Faith in our calling as followers of Jesus does not always equal winning. As you follow Jesus, there might be times where you feel like and you are losing. Hard circumstances in life. But don't let that dictate how you observe and and. and interpret what is going on in following Jesus or who God is. Faith does not always equal success, and we see that clearly through Saul and Jonathan. Saul did everything right in the story. I mean, there's so much we miss, but he 
consults a priest. He makes them fast, even though it was for wrong reasons. He builds an altar to God to worship. He prays to God using this uh, portable, transferable ark of the covenant. But it was all for show. But Jonathan, his success was not rooted in skill, but his dependence on God. He didn't presume upon God. He didn't see this as a faith that just determined, is determined by winning. But you see, he completely depended on the Lord with humility and submission to God's ways. And he practiced his faith by following Jesus even in dire, helpless, hopeless situations. So what do we do with this? Okay, Dan, you're telling me these, these are the things of what faith looks like. Well, what do we do? Just two simple things I want us to take away from this morning. First, many of us will not begin as Jonathan's, right? We need Jonathan's in our lives. Those that we can emulate and follow as we see their faith, we learn and we grow and we, and we come alongside them and under them. Look at what Jonathan does in his faith. 600 men and all those that were hiding come out of the woodworks and they follow Jonathan. We're those people. We're those who are scared out of our mind, hiding in the holes and caves and cisterns. And we're called to follow people, men and women in your lives that God might be pointing you to, to be able to say, I need to follow so I might learn what faith looks like through these men and women. Who are those Jonathans in your life that you can follow? and to learn and grow from so that we might continue to take that mustard seed faith and grow it to become more and more like Jesus. But second, the other thing I want us to think about and focus is that we need to look not only at other Jonathans in our lives, but the ultimate Jonathan. The ultimate Jonathan in Jesus Christ, who is not ransomed, by his troops, but became the ransom for us so that we might actually have victory and life. Where he was ransomed, hung on a cross, died the death that we deserved so that we might be forgiven, so that we might find our identity in Christ and not in our own works, our own faith, but in Christ's faith, in his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and it's through him being ransomed that we need to look to for our faith. Who was not saved by many or by few, but we are saved by one. This one Jesus who did it all for us. Think about him in the Garden of Gethsemane. Where he was utterly and completely helpless. Agonizing, suffering, and in the Garden of Gethsemane, what does he say? Lord, take this cup from me that's filled with wrath and shame and sin and guilt. Take this cup from me. Not my will, but your will. What do you see in that? You see a faith that is exhibited in trusting his Father to the utmost to the end. The one who said, I'm not going to presume on my Father and think that I will be rescued and saved. 
I don't have all the answers here and in my own humanity. I need to trust in my Father and say, if not my will, your will be done. And talk about losing and winning. In the world's eyes, a complete loser. Utter failure. The worst way you could die in Roman culture. He was a loser. Died the death of a criminal, yet perfect. And yet he had the ultimate faith and trust in his father. And that's the one we need to look to. That when your faith is weak and fragile, you might look to your brother or sister in Christ, but ultimately we look to Jesus. Because he was perfect in faith. Perfect in trusting his heavenly father. That's where we rest our faith in. It's not about your faith. It's about the object and who we put our faith in, in Christ alone. And when we do that, we will have a mustard seed, a seed that can even move mountains. And that's what God calls us to. In your weakness, in your frailty, when you feel like giving up, set your eyes on Christ. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning. And we thank you for your son. Who exhibited such amazing faith and trust in you. So Lord, I pray that wherever we are, each and every single one of us discouraged, brokenhearted, feeling like we are utterly losing. Lord, help us to look to you. Help us to do that now as we come to the table set our eyes on Jesus, whose body was slaughtered but given for us, whose blood was shed so that we might be forgiven. Lord, help us to set our eyes on you. So easy to look at our circumstances and be so hopeless. But Lord, give us faith to look to you and to know, Lord, that you work out all things for the good of those who love you. Do that now, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.